Well, we have come to the ninth and final week in our family tree series. And over the past eight weeks, we have looked at the lives of a good numbers, a good number of the members of our family tree, our spiritual family tree, uh, people who are all our spiritual relatives, some from way back on the family tree, people like Abraham and Rachel, and some from the early days of the church, like Peter and Paul. And what we've seen throughout this entire series is that each of our spiritual relatives had a moment when they either came face to face with new circumstances or they had a sudden realization that led to great change in their lives. They had what we've been calling transitional moments, moments when life made a radical turn towards serving God and trusting God. And this week's spiritual relative is no different. This week, we will be looking at the transition in uh, one of our family or spiritual family members' lives that was just as radical as anybody else that we've looked at, except for one thing. And that one thing is that every week we've started out the sermons by saying something like this. Now, the Bible has told us so much about this person that there's no possible way that we can cover it all in one sermon. We can only cover a fraction of what is said about them. But this week, that's not the case. Uh, this week we'll be looking at the transi transitional moment in the life of a New Testament character named Lydia. And unlike people like Abraham and Paul, the Bible gives us almost nothing about her except that she had an important, overwhelming moment of change in her life. Uh, we find this short story about Lydia and her life change in Acts chapter 16, uh, starting in verse 11, but it only runs through verse 15. Oh, she's also mentioned in verse 40 at the end of that chapter. So what we get total about Lydia is six verses. But there are six verses that I think are really well worth looking into carefully because they tell us some very important things about her. And especially as one of our relatives, our spiritual relatives, somebody in our spiritual heritage. And I think that what we learn is important also because I think it can inspire us to a deeper walk with Jesus. So everybody needs to turn to Acts chapter 16. That's page 921 on the house, in the house Bible. Acts 16 verse 11 is where we'll be. And while we have a moment while you're looking that up, I wanna say hey to everybody that's online. I, I think a lot of people are on vacation. I got a lot of emails from people who said, I'll be visiting with you online this weekend. So hey, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. And I hope you're having a good time on vacation if that's why you're away, so that's good. So are we ready? Now I have to give us a bit of context before we start uh, this chapter, these verses. And actually, my wife told me that I have to tell you that it's a bit more than a bit. It's a lot of context to um, get to the root of things today. It's a fairly complicated passage to get down to the bottom of. And you need to know what's happening around it. So are you ready? Here we go. I'm sorry I have to do this, but here we go. Um, Luke was the author of the book of Acts. 
And Luke, at this point in chapter 16 of his book, is telling his readers about the various missionary journeys that Paul, the apostle, took when he went out to spread the good news about Jesus. And Luke's description of these journeys, there were three missionary journeys by Paul, three separate times that he went out and traveled around the world to tell people about Jesus. And, and by the way, he's, Luke starts telling us about Paul's missionary journeys in chapter 13 of Acts, and they go all the way to the end of the book. It's more than half of the book just talking about these missionary journeys. And here in chapter 16, we are in the very middle of his second journey, his second journey traveling around. And we're told that he was traveling with a group of people, but they've only given us two names of other people that are traveling with him. We're told that one guy's named Silas and the other guy's named Timothy. So this, they're traveling with Paul. But an interesting thing happens here, right here in verse 11 of chapter 16. And what it is, is this, that the author, Luke, starts using the pronoun we when he describes everything. And so what this tells us from all that we can tell, actually, Luke, the author of this book, was now traveling with Paul. And what that tells us is that he's not just giving us a story that he heard from somebody else now, he's actually an eyewitness of what is going to happen next, okay? So this is somebody who saw exactly what we're going to talk about next. And it says in verse 11, we boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across to the island of Samothrace. And next we landed at Neapolis. And from there we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia and a Roman colony and we stayed there several days. Now, we're going to put a map up just so you get an idea. Okay, there's the map. Okay, I'm going to have to come up here because I can't see it very well without my glasses. But okay, see Asia right there, right in the middle at the top? Asia? And then if you go just to the left of Asia, you'll see Troas. It's kind of hard to see there, but it says Troas. That's where they started, and they took a boat And you see those two little islands as it goes up towards Neapolis? One of those is that Samothrace Island. It was just a rocky place that nobody lived, but they let you know that he went by that. And then Neapolis is the big port. And then there's a line that goes over way up at the top there. You see it says Philippi. See how it's really straight from Neapolis to Philippi? Philippi was on the road that went right straight across Macedonia. And if you wanted to go to Rome, you got on a boat and you traveled to Neapolis and then you took that road right straight across Macedonia and you could get a boat to Rome quickly. So, so what they're doing is they're just following a regular way that most people go. And Luke calls Philippi a major city or a first city of the region of Macedonia. And there, that Macedonia is Greece today, okay? It's just Greece. And what that meant was, when he says it's a major city of the district, that meant that it was the most important city of that region. And we know it was really important by the fact that he calls it a Roman colony or it's, it's colonia in Latin and Greek. And this means that besides being an urbane, bustling city, um, it was also a place 
where Rome encouraged its Roman soldiers to live in that city when they retired. If a soldier retired from being in the Roman army and he retired in Philippi, the government would give him a home and a pension. And, so, and, they, and they made the city wonderful. I mean, I could go on and on about how Philippi was a wonderful place to retire if you were a Roman soldier. Now, I'm just going to be straight with you. Hardly any Roman soldiers ever lived to retirement age. You had to serve 25 years in the service of the Roman army or be in 16 foreign country campaigns wars to fighting for Rome to get to retire. And the truth is, almost nobody lived 25 years in the Roman army or lived through 16 wars. But if you did, if you did, Rome made sure that Philippi was a great place for a crusty old soldier to spend his last years. Plus, Rome had made it so that anybody who was a resident of Philippi was also a citizen of Rome. And that's a big advantage in the Roman Empire to have all the privileges of being a Roman citizen. In fact, if you were a true resident of Philippi, it was as if you were a true resident of the city of Rome. And so if you put all that together, you can guess that Philippi was a just think about it. It's a town that's filled with Roman soldiers who'd retired, and it's also filled with people who are citizens of Rome. And I'm just going to say that Philippi was so Roman that it was a town that didn't take well to people who had allegiances to anything other than Rome. Okay? Let's go on. This is on verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside of the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. And we sat down to speak to some women who had gathered there. I'm going to stop there because believe it or not, this verse tells us a ton about Philippi. It's the Sabbath day. That's the day that the Jews held very highly. They worshiped together on the Sabbath. Nobody else in the world worshiped on the Sabbath day once a week like that. And the reason that this group of people have gathered on a riverbank outside of the city was this. Jews who did not have a synagogue in their town would look for places with what's called living or moving water a quiet place by moving water where they could gather and pray together if they didn't have a synagogue. And the rules for making a synagogue in a town was you had to have 10 men over the age of 13. Once you had 10 men living in the town, Jews who were over the age of 13, you could form a synagogue. What does this tell us? It tells us that there weren't even 10 Jewish men living in, in Philippi over the age of 13. So, though, so they had to go look for a place outside of town to gather to pray. And this verse also tells us that the only people in Philippi who were interested on a Sabbath morning in praying were women. 
and I don't want to be condescending about it, but that says a lot about how few or how uninterested in Jewish things the few Jewish men in that town were about God. Let's go on. Verse 14, we read, one of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. Okay, now we've met Lydia. A couple of things. Lydia was the name of the region in central Turkey where the city of Thyatira was located. Now, we're talking about Philippi, which is in Greece, but Thyatira was in what we call Turkey. And we're almost certain that this Lydia was a Greek-speaking Gentile woman who was called Lydia, not because her real name was Lydia, but because she was a lady from Lydia. Now, I know that sounds weird, but it'd be like if my wife were to move to Scotland and everyone in Scotland called her Indiana. Now, that sounds weird, but that's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. Now, in the Greek, it simply says this. It goes Lydia, and then it goes Parpharopolis. Parpharopolis. And Parpharopolis is, is like a title for a, a, what's the right word? Your job, your employment, what you do for a living. It's like we say the word farrier, and everybody knows that's a person who puts shoes on a horse. Well, Parpharopolis, everybody in the ancient world knew that a Parpharopolis was a merchant of expensive purple cloth. And the process for making purple cloth back then was incredibly complex and difficult and expensive. Just take my word for it. It'd take me about 10 minutes to explain how they got the juice out of muscles to make purple dye. And it, that was even too much information right there. Just Thyatira on the sea was a center for making the dye to create purple cloth. And purple cloth, because it was so expensive to make, was the co- a color that was only worn by those people who were really wealthy and had lots of prestige. And Lydia was a representative of purple cloth makers in a highly sophisticated, highly Roman city named Philippi. But somehow, she had become a worshiper of the Jewish God. Philippi was a city with almost no Jewish presence, let alone any Jewish influence. And the Philippians were known for being good Romans who worshiped the Roman gods. And along with the Roman gods, they worshiped the emperor. And somehow Lydia, I don't know how, but she came to set all of that stuff that was going on in Philippi aside and believed that it was important to get up on a Jewish Sabbath morning and join a few other Jewish women outside of the town on a riverbank to pray. How that happened, we don't know, but there she is. A Gentile among a few Jewish women And along comes Paul and Silas and Timothy, and they start telling these women about Jesus. And the next verse tells us something really important. It says, as she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart, and she accepted what Paul was saying. 
she and her household were baptized. Now, I know that what I'm about to say is going to seem wacky, but I have to tell you about this. When it says in Luke that the Lord opened her heart, and that's, that's a, actually a raw translation of the Greek, the Lord opened her heart to take heed of the things spoken. Or it says, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. Our natural response to a statement like this is, oh, isn't that wonderful that her heart was opened? Um, I bet it was like a warm emotional fountain was flowing in her soul. Lydia let go and she went with her heart. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. Let me just tell you, that's absolutely not what happened at all. Um, You see, in the ancient world, the Greek believed that all the fuzzy, warm stuff that happens, we give credit to our heart, actually happened in your intestines and your liver and your stomach. That's where we had all of, this is where they believed that all the warm fuzzy happened. But in your heart, your heart, they thought, was the place where you made rational decisions. All of their, when you made a thoughtful had an idea or a thought that was rational. It came out of your heart. We say that happens in our minds. The Greeks actually thought that our brains were just gray soupy stuff that let stuff flow through. And it, was just, it had nothing to do with anything when we, when, in terms of thinking. Now, when it says here in the Bible that the Lord opened up Lydia's heart, It meant that she was listening to Paul's message about Jesus being crucified and resurrected for the sins of the world. And the Holy Spirit then moved in to help her put together everything that she had learned about the Jewish scriptures from the past. And she came to the logical decision that Paul was right. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord and the Savior. And she believed this so strongly that She got baptized, and then she had her entire household baptized along with her. And one quick thing about that, women almost never had the authority in a household to have everybody baptized. When we say entire household, we mean their relatives and their servants, and if they had them, their slaves. Everybody gets baptized. It was expected that a whole household would follow the family leader's religious leanings. But almost all family leaders were men. And what this most likely means is that Lydia was a single, probably widowed woman, wealthy, and in the unusual position of having ultimate authority over her household. This is very rare. The second half of verse 15 says this, and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. Now Lydia's doing two things here when she's talking to them. First, she's giving these Jewish men the option of not staying in her house because she's a Gentile. 
And she wants them to be convinced that she has what? Had a conversion so that they will feel comfortable being in this Gentile woman's house. And I just have to say that her deference to them in this moment is very noteworthy about her character. And secondly, she is opening her apparently large home to these traveling missionaries and ancient people did not let just anybody come and stay in their homes. They only opened their doors to guests who would be people that they wanted to let the whole world know they were connected to them in some way. And if you put all this together, she was telling the whole world that she was standing in full solidarity with Paul and his message. And this is really noteworthy in a city like Philippi. Now I want to step back for a moment and put Lydia's circumstances into perspective. First, she is a foreign resident of a highly Roman citizen or city, okay? Second, she is there to sell expensive cloth to the very few people rich enough in that well-to-do city to buy her cloth. Thirdly, she is a single woman in a highly patriarchal society. Plus, she is a follower of the God of a very small group of unimportant people from someplace far away. And finally, she is a thinking, rational woman in a culture where women were born to make babies and to stay quiet. Almost everything that we can find out about her before she meets Jesus says, who is this amazing lady? But when she figures out that Paul, that what he's saying makes perfect sense, and she gets baptized and then converts her entire home to being a Christian household, and then she invites these strangers with this new odd message about a resurrected from the dead Jewish Messiah, she says, come and stay in my home. There is when you take all of that into consideration, there is no question that I think she might be as brave as anybody in the whole Bible. First, her acceptance of Paul's message about Jesus, it's put all of her relationships with the citizens of Philippi at risk. You know this, that in Philippi, everybody who was a Roman citizen knew there was only one person on the planet that you could call your Lord, and that was Caesar. And yet now Lydia has gone public that Jesus is her Lord. And her association with Paul might have put, could have very easily put all of her business relationships at risk. There aren't that many people who are gonna buy purple cloth in Philippi, but the ones that can afford it, they probably wouldn't have wanted to have much to do with some woman who believed what this odd guy Paul was saying. And her choosing to be baptized and publicly stand with Paul's message, well, I think it puts just about everything in her whole life at risk. I mean, we don't know how her family and the people who worked in her household responded to being told, oh, and you're gonna get baptized and worship Jesus whether you like it or not. 
And we don't know, we don't know what her employers back in Thyatira thought about her following Jesus. We do know from the book of Revelation that there was a church in Thyatira and they didn't have what I would call a wonderful reputation. I can't imagine if the people in Thyatira said, do we really want a Christian representing us now? And we don't know how her friends and neighbors in Philippi reacted to this change in her, but what we do know is that just a couple of days after she got baptized, the whole city got in a uproar, like a riot, and they were all upset about these Jews, and they were talking about Paul and Silas, the two men that we know told her about Jesus. And when you read what happened next to Paul and Silas after she gets baptized, you can see why what we read in verse 40 tells us a whole bunch about Lydia's bravery. Verse 40 says this, when Paul and Silas left prison, okay, they came out of prison. When they left prison, they returned to the home of Lydia, and there they met with the believers and encouraged them once more. Everything in her life was at risk, possibly even her life with all that was swirling around in Philippi that day, those days related to Paul and Silas, she was really risking a lot. And yet, her home became the location of the first church in Europe. Such was her bravery. Okay, what do we do with this? Well, almost every sermon I could find on Lydia spoke about her as being a merchant and that she then used her wealth generously for the kingdom. That might be there, but I honestly think that's a bit of a manipulation of the story. Um, I think it comes down to a couple of things. The first is related to Lydia's conversion. Hers was a decision based on the truth of the message. Paul gave her the facts related to Jesus' life and death and resurrection, and those facts made logical sense to Lydia. She accepted the message not because it made her feel all warm and fuzzy inside, but because it connected with all that she knew to be true about God. And what she had learned from the Old Testament scriptures is that God is loving and that he cares about us. And she had seen in his word that he was willing to do whatever it takes to win us back to himself. And this sending of Jesus made sense to her. And that morning beside the river, she realized that this message about Jesus was a message that was so powerful that it could change her life. And I know that as followers of Jesus, our faith is one of great hope. But Lydia's story tells me that our hope isn't something disconnected from the real world. Our hope is based on events that actually happened in the real world. They happened at a specific time. This is not a once upon a time story about Jesus. And they were events that were witnessed and recorded by people who saw them happen, real people just like you and me. And this is the faith that Lydia accepted, and I can tell you, it is still a faith that is worth giving our lives to. That doesn't mean we won't have questions, that we won't have confusions and difficulties and heartbreaks and such as followers of Jesus. But what it does mean is that our hope isn't something that is just wishful thinking. 
Our hope is based on the fact that Jesus lived and died and rose again to save us from ourselves and to give us abundant life now and into eternity. And Lydia's story just says this to us, hey, use your heart like she was thinking of it, and it will make sense. It will make sense. And secondly, I think we have Lydia's story to inspire us to bravery. I have never had my being a good American citizen questioned because I'm a Christian. Nor has my work or my family ever been put at risk because I am a follower of Jesus. So I can't say with total confidence what I would do if any of that happened to me. But my prayer is that I would be as brave as Lydia. I know that in our culture, we work overtime not to offend others. And I I understand this, I honestly do. Still, the faith that we hold in Jesus wasn't called the gospel, the good news for nothing. And I suppose the challenge today is to live this faith in such a manner that it is still received by good, as good news from people without being colored by all the other bad news that so many in our world now connect with people who follow Jesus. I want my life to be such, I want to live my life in such a way that if my, my neighbors were asked if they agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, just like Lydia asked Paul, she said, Are, do you, am I a true believer in the Lord? Tell me about it. I'm hoping that my neighbors, if they are asked that question about me, that they'll quickly say, yes, I agree he is, and they'll answer this way because to quote Paul directly, that my life has been tender and compassionate and agreeable and loving, and that I'm willing to work with others with one mind and purpose, and that I've been selfless and humble and always thinking of others better than myself, and that these are the attitudes that Jesus had. And can I tell you, that list of things that I just put up there to say what I want my life to be like is the list that Paul made out to the Philippian church. He wrote a letter to the Philippian church and said, live like this because this is what citizens of the kingdom of heaven look like. And we know from the Bible that it took all kinds of bravery to live this way in Philippi because everyone there prided themselves in being what? Citizens of Rome. But we can be certain that there was one member of the Philippian church, one proud citizen of the kingdom of heaven that lived this way and we can be proud that she is one of our relatives, one of our spiritual ancestors, and that's Lydia. And I'm just gonna ask you to join me in a quest for this kind of bravery. If you see, it was her kind of bravery that set aside all the fears that come when we stand for Jesus especially in our dark world, but she set aside all those fears and went public. And it's this kind of bravery that Lydia had that made it, makes it possible for us to stand in the truth and the power of the gospel. And it's this kind of bravery that I want because this Lydia bravery is the kind of courage that can, when it is coupled with the power of the Holy Spirit, it can change the world. 
I'm standing on that one, folks. I'm going to ask you to pray with me now that we all get this kind of bravery. Would you pray with me? Father, I am so thankful that we have this little bit about Lydia, but that if we know enough about her life and what was going on at the time, that we'll know that she was a woman who not only followed after you, but that she was brave in her faith. She trusted the power of your Holy Spirit to not only change her and her household, but the city of Philippi, and that we know, Lord, that Philippi was changed forever by this group of people who followed you, and the one person that we know about is Lydia. Thank you, Lord, for this, and I pray that we'll be a community that stands bravely for the truth of your word so that we can show the world that you love us all. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church, and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us slash hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.